And now, this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. What are the latest advances in cancer treatment and research? ReachMD takes a closer look. A matter of life and death. A door begins to open with cryopreservation of ovaries. You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lori Zoloth. Dr. Zoloff is the director of the Center of Ethics, Science, and Society, and also professor of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for inviting me. If I can begin this discussion, can I just ask you, what is this term I see over and over again in the literature, oncofertility? Oncofertility is a new term describing a new field at the intersection of the patient need that arises when oncology patients, after they have been confronted with the acute event of their diagnosis and have received therapy and interventions that have in fact limited or destroyed their fertility, need to have their fertility addressed along with other sequelae from the treatment. That presented a problem for oncology patients that didn't exist when we were less successful with treating cancer. And it intersects the similar research path of fertility, which is an increasing success with patients who are infertile and increasing use of artificial reproductive technology. If you put together those skills, that research technology, and those interventions with the needs of the oncology patients, you meet at the center, and that research and therapeutic intervention is called oncofertility. Well, what are some of the options that you would offer a child or a young woman not yet ready to start a family at this particular point when her diagnosis of cancer has just been made? Well, normally how it's done is different than what confronts a young boy. A young boy can, of course, have his sperm retrieved and stored at a certain age and then later come to the decision to have a family if he survives the cancer and if he so chooses. For a young woman, the choices are quite different. If she is past puberty and she is reproducing eggs on her own, she can have her reproductive cycle hyperstimulated, which has its, of course, pros and cons given the cancer itself. She can then be um, stimulated to hyperovulate, and those eggs that she produces can then be surgically retrieved and fertilized with some sperm from someplace, and embryos created and then frozen. That's really the only realistic and sure option that she faces. Now, she could try to freeze some of the eggs without fertilizing them, but the technology for egg freezing and then thawing years later is unknown and up to this point hasn't been reliably successful, though there are reports of it being in the literature, incidental reports of it sometimes working after some period of time, that's not a reliable choice, not nearly as reliable as making an embryo. But there's enormous social and ethical problems with asking a 14-year-old to create a child with someone, even if they're a 17-year-old and they've got a boyfriend, or even a 25-year-old with a boyfriend may or may not want to, at this point, commit to creating children, embryos that could be used for their later children with this particular person. So 
except in rare circumstances when people are in a deeply committed relationship, the choice to do what's called emergency IVF is one that's really rarely taken by young women and children facing cancer. You mentioned that we are not particularly successful in cryopreservation and maturation of follicles that we uh, obtain. But hasn't there been some recent research which has caught everybody's attention having to do with NU-born and NU-age mice actually coming from Northwestern and that we're leaping ahead into the future based on this murine research? Exactly right. We have not been terribly successful freezing eggs, mature eggs, and then thawing them because the process of cryopreservation creates a crystalline structures that damage the DNA and damage the, a successful cell that emerges out of them. But freezing the follicles is more successful, and in fact, that's the Northwestern University research that's proceeded so well. And that's not only new age and newborn, but other mice have been successfully born out of follicles that have been frozen and then thawed, and then the follicle, follicular tissue is placed in a nanotechnology gel, which is why it freezes so well, and that gel simulates the three-dimensional architecture of the follicle itself, of the ovary itself, and within that nanotech architecture, the follicles mature, produce eggs once thawed, and then those eggs are extracted and fertilized and planted in a mouse, and then the mice give birth to seem like perfectly healthy young mice, newborn and new age, have had children of their own conceived naturally in a mouse-like way. We're talking about mice, and it seems a long way away before we'll have this technology. But there's a lot of interest in this. It seems to be a political subject charged in many, many areas. Can you tell me why we should have answers for these questions before we have the technology? We've all seen as medical health professionals and the observing philosophers, the enormous social and moral debate that surrounded stem cell research. Now, that happened long before any stem cell has been successfully implanted in any human. That happened just when stem cells were derived from human embryos. All it took was the first derivation the implications of that first research to begin an enormous social debate. That's certainly true for cloning. When cloning in mammals became possible, there was a crushingly large and very, very, very intense debate, even though nothing has been attempted in the human person. The debate and the politics and the religious feelings on every side has, in fact, enveloped stem cell research in an enormous arena of discourse that has largely nothing to do with the way science usually does its learning and does its search for knowledge. The hope is that before you have that kind of debate, you could begin the slow inquiry that societies need where they are introduced to the research, where they have a chance to participate in thinking in advance about the ethical questions, where they feel that their voices have been carefully heard as the research develops. This research has extraordinary implications because it says that the human normal human narrative or the normal religious human narrative of women, men, and sexual intercourse as described, for instance, in the recent Catholic documents, that can be stopped and then restarted at a later point, that reproductive technology has the ability to stop the narrative and 
protect the eggs and restart the story at a later date. That deconstruction of any kind of core human narrative is really in conflict with how religions imagine what it means to be a human. It, it really questions and creates the religious anthropology of a new human being. Religions think about anthropological questions, about theological questions, and about ethical questions all at once. So anything that changes human anthropology, what it means to be a human person and how a human, human persons live, those immediately are on the terrain of religious inquiry. So that's one reason why this could be potentially very destabilizing research. Second, it's, research has theological implications and ethical ones because it exists right at that nexus of life and death, at cancer diagnosis, the moment of confrontation with human mortality, often in the middle of, of, a, of a healthy childhood, suddenly this confrontation, which is widely perceived to be not only a clinical confrontation, but of course a religious confrontation as well. And finally, this avoids one enormous fight within reproductive technology, which is the creation of the embryo. And that's been the flashpoint for much of religion's objection to advanced reproductive technology. It's once a embryo is conceived, once it exists, its potential to become human under the perfect circumstances, while we know clinically it's rare, theologically it's a certainty. And for those who feel that human life begins at that moment of conception, that first assemblage of DNA, wherever it occurs, whenever it occurs, then creates a human person who's the subject of our rights and subject of our attention and subject of our concern and subject of human dignity. So the avoidance of the creation of embryos that just are stored in their thousands is widely understood as a good thing because avoiding the creation of embryos is avoiding the creation of these potential human persons. This Northwestern technology would enable the eggs to be stored and the sperm to be stored, neither of which have that significance, neither of which are the subject of the same sort of rights. And then at a later point, when a family can come together, then the child could be conceived and not with no extra embryos being created. For Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, that still wouldn't be a natural act, and therefore it, would, it may well be a prohibited act. But using the follicles for reimplantation holds some promise for acceptance even within that religious community. With the surplus of eggs, is it possible that there might be a use in SCNT, somatic cellular nuclear transfer? It's a very good question because stem cell research itself, as well as other kinds of research in human fertility, as well, of course, as the use of eggs in human reproduction with women who no longer produce their own eggs, has created a marketplace for eggs, for human eggs. And the exchange of eggs for something, for privileges or discounts at your reproductive clinic for your own use, for money, has reached really disturbing proportions, so much so that there's been an attempt to think about what's the limit on how much you can offer for a young woman to go through hyper 
ovulation per cycle. I saw it someplace that $100,000 was a going price, and I actually saw it in a college newspaper. Well, $100,000, <laughs> if your SRTs are above a certain level, and if you're at, a, at an Ivy League or university like Northwestern, I too have seen those ads at Stanford and at Northwestern for a particular kind of egg because people have such a sense that good genetics leads to good babies and it's a direct causality. The price that's suggested by the IVF community of physicians themselves is something more like $7,000 per cycle. However, in these economic times, when people don't have jobs and for a, a young woman having a job as a secretary or an NIH fellow, for that matter, is something like 25000 or $30,000, you can see that $7,000 every few months might be an enormous incentive, even $3,000 in these economic times or $2,000. So it does create an incentive for women to undergo this hyperstimulation and the creation of eggs. And that's created a range from unease to frank alarm among feminists who look at this exchange and say, is it undue pressure? Especially when people think about getting eggs from offshore, from women in Eastern Europe, from women in India, for instance. And the use of women's bodies in that particular way raises significant questions. And it's caused a significant debate, very akin to the debate around can you pay for organs. And since we've decided that paying for organs is both illegal and immoral, many people think that paying for eggs might fall into the same category. And that's a very fiercely debated question. Now, into this debate comes Teresa Woodruff's lab saying we can freeze follicles in mice and perhaps in humans by the hundreds and then generate eggs, right, by the thousands. And could these eggs potentially be used for research purposes other than in oncofertility? Potentially they can, but to make that decision would be another social decision. It's not the intent of oncofertility, and that would need another set of reflections about the extension of this research beyond the use it now has. As we begin to enter this new era of technology, which may change the whole field of fertility, we will be faced with many, many moral and ethical questions. I want to thank Dr. Lori Zoloff, who is Professor of Medical Humanities and Bioethics at the Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University in Chicago. She's been our guest for this very thought-provoking discussion. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Cancer. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.